0: Hi everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Grad School Femme Touring Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Yvette, and today's episode is on how to survive college and grad school as a highly sensitive student. This year, I have um, made the decision to talk a little bit more about topics related to neurodivergence and neurodiversity, and I want to dive in a little bit deeper on managing specific challenges and embracing specific strengths, and um, I decided to do this and was validated by it, um, both in meetings and conversations that I've had in uh, social media spaces, and um, because, you know, I, I've i been doing this work with my virtual assistant, Samhar, of um, downloading all of my old episodes, uh, all 170 of them, and getting them um, transcribed with the software that I use. We use Otter AI. And then from there, my VA assists me by editing the transcripts to make sure that they make sense and that they are readable, that you, um, can go to the website, download them and access them. It's, it's another way to make the work that I do more accessible. And so in having this conversation with some about the episodes, the topics, the work that I do, you know, sometimes it can be hard for you to think outside of yourself, um, to describe, um, who you are and what you do um, from the perspective of someone who is new to meeting you and your work. And so um, somehow mentioned something about how a lot of what I talk about is what I say, which is, you know, last year, I started to be more specific about saying that I I'm focusing on demystifying the grad school journey and, um, teaching sustainable productivity tips and practices and also focusing on personal development, So not just professional development, but the personal development aspect of getting to know ourselves better to live more um, values oriented lives or more aligned lives, however you want to call that. Um, but yeah, Samhar mentioned, but also, you know, you are chronically ill. You are neurodivergent, and you uh, what you share is is informed by that lens. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's true, and that's right. And those are the voices that I want to keep uplifting too, um, because I know that my platform is all about supporting first gen BIPOC students, first gen students of color. But then that added element is that my perspective is from someone who is chronically ill and neurodivergent and has learned more about it um, recently in the last couple of years. And um, another thing that has come up is that because I've started to talk about neurodivergence a little bit more, I've had more people who trust me, um, ask me, well, you know, Dr. Ivet, what is neurodivergence? Um, what is neurodiversity? You know or maybe um they're like maybe i'm neurodivergent i've always struggled with x y and z or oh my my child's teacher is telling me that maybe i should get them assessed for x y and z and of course i always say i, I say to others like i'm telling you now i'm not a mental health professional i'm not trained um to diagnose anyone but i can certainly speak from my positionality and from my experience as someone who is neurodivergent and someone who has a partner and son who are also neurodivergent but very different from me <laughs> and um, and so i do know a thing or two about it so i'll start today's episode just with a little bit of the 101 stuff uh, i want to define these terms for clarity okay So when I say the word neurodivergence, I'm referring to a term that's often used to describe the ways that certain people's brains have developed or work differently than your typical person's brain. This doesn't make them any better or worse. It just means they have different strengths and different struggles. Neurodiversity is a term that acknowledges the fact that we live in a world where so many people around us are different and we all experience and feel and interact with the world in different ways whether we are neurodivergent or neurotypical so then comes the word neurotypical that term is used to describe individuals whose behavior and brain function um in ways that are considered to be the norm or "quote unquote" typical by a larger or more general population. So then, the neurodivergent um, individual is someone who experiences neurodivergence. Um, so that's where you get the neurodiver neurodivergence, neurodiversity. And so, I, I hear when folks say, "You know, um, I am neurodiverse." I think that a lot of people what they're trying to say is that they are neurodivergent. Um, because neurodiversity refers to everyone and how we all experience the world differently. But if you have been diagnosed or have a strong suspicion and and can self-identify in a way where you're pretty sure, but you just don't have access to the resources to get um, a diagnosis, then. Um, then yeah you there's a good chance that you are neurodivergent so in my case for instance I have struggled for most of my life I've said this time and time again with depression and anxiety it's an ongoing thing um on and off and also more recently in the last couple of years realized that I'm a highly sensitive person it I I don't understand why it took me so long to realize that or to figure out that there is a term for this thing. (laughs) I mean, I've always been called sensitive and sometimes didn't like being called sensitive uh, growing up. Uh, But yes, there is an actual thing called, you know, a highly sensitive person. And so um, in the world of neurodivergence, there are many different types. um, And you may or may not be familiar with with All of them. I probably am not familiar with all of them. Again, this is not my my, an expertise that I've kind of researched as a you know scholar of, of neurodivergence, but I am familiar that some of the ones that a lot of us hear about are ADHD, autism, dyslexia. Um there's also other forms of neurodivergence, there's dyscalculia. Epilepsy, obsessive compulsive disorder, highly sensitive person. Um, There's, uh, this includes also folks who struggle with chronic mental health disorders like depression and anxiety, and also individuals who have learning disabilities. There's a lot, a lot more of things that fall under the neurodivergence umbrella, and we all experience that same thing differently too so you might know more than one autistic person and they're so different (laughs) like my husband and son they're so different um you might know, know someone who has adhd and then you know someone else who is adhd again they might be so different we all experience it differently although there are some common markers and so in my case hsp or being highly sensitive Um, is one of them. And I have struggled with that for most of my life without knowing what it was. I always thought that it was just a byproduct of struggling with depression and anxiety, but it's, it's more than that. People who are highly sensitive happen to have deeper cognitive processing to emotional, social, and physical stimuli. It's similar to having a sensory processing disorder in that you have a sensitivity to sensory stimuli. So how do you know if you're highly sensitive? Um, There's a good chance that you might be highly compassionate. You might experience emotions intensely. You might think, analyze, and worry more than others. You might be easily aroused easily stimulated easily overwhelmed um you're sent you might be sensitive to external stimuli um you might need more downtime than others there also um are folks who if they're highly sensitive they're probably also highly intuitive highly observant very thoughtful like i mentioned earlier very compassionate highly creative, have a rich inner life, and can connect deeply with others. There's a lot more. Um, There are actually multiple quizzes you can find online to determine whether or not you're highly sensitive. And um, also, um, I'll have to link a book that I read about about neurodivergence and I'm blanking out on the name of the book. So I'll I'll add it in the show notes. If you see a link to a book, Um, that book has a really, really good list of characteristics of HSP, but it focuses on neurodivergence in general. Uh, So if you want to learn more about that topic, I would recommend that book. Um, So growing up, I didn't know that was a thing. I think a lot of us um, older millennials, sadly, unfortunately, especially women and people of color, um, we were not diagnosed. Maybe we didn't have access to it. Maybe um, they didn't like uh, maybe professionals didn't notice these traits in us because they were uh, conflated with maybe some cultural um. Cultural expectation and things like that, and so a lot of us, um, because there wasn't a strong conversation um, about neurodivergence back then, we we got lost. We they, you know they told us girls that we're just anxious, um, but we didn't get these these official diagnoses, and a lot of us still don't have it. Um, but in my case. Highly sensitive, and some of the some of the negative things that I would hear other people say about me, and you might relate to this if you suddenly realize you're highly sensitive too, is now this brown girl (laughs) always out in the sun, like you know, brown shy girl um, who grew up in a strict household with immigrant parents, with an abusive father, with older brothers who weren't always supportive, who didn't embrace all parts of my identity. And so I would always hear whether it was my brothers or my dad or people around me telling me, you're too sensitive. You're too emotional. You're too dramatic. You're too much. Just relax. Just calm down. Toughen up. I still get a little triggered when i just hearing myself say those things out loud because then you start to internalize these things and associate them with you. And so it takes a lot of unlearning to embrace who you are and embrace the amazing things that come with being highly sensitive or any other neurodivergence that you may identify with, that you may have. And so that along with many other things and experiences in my childhood resulted in me becoming a perfectionistic person, a people pleasing person, a young adult who was obsessed with learning about other people's behavior and the how of doing things. I was always going to workshops to learn tips and tricks and strategies. And like, I would always be like wondering, so how do, and I thought it was a first, just a first gen thing. But more recently, I realized it's not just a first-gen experience, it's also a neurodivergence experience where you're over-analyzing other people's behavior and the way that they do things and trying to mimic them because you've been taught your whole life that this is what you do to be successful. And so, yeah, one of the examples of the, one of the things I, I struggled with a lot in college and in grad school was networking. And I'll be honest, I still struggle with networking, not as much as before, but it's, it's still, you know, takes some concerted effort on my behalf. Um, but I would wonder, like, how do people network? How do they connect? What type of message do they send each other? How, how, how? Like, how do they not be socially awkward? How do you talk to a stranger? Um, And Yeah. So again, I I only recently realized, wow, this is a thing like my strong interest and desire in learning about other people's behavior and how they do things, the how, and then shedding light on that, how on this podcast, for instance, that's, that's, you know, part of, of how I've learned to navigate and survive in this world. And so knowing what I know now, if I could write a letter, or record a podcast to my former self, if I could talk to my former self, these are some of the things that I wish I would have done, or I would have done more, or I would have done better um, to improve the way that my higher ed experience was as a highly sensitive student. Because I I had a lot of struggles, and I didn't 100% embrace all the awesome things about me, And again, I wish that I did. So here are the things I would say to myself. The first is in terms of advice. And this goes, this is, you know, to anyone who may be um, struggling. The first thing, if you perceive that you might be neurodivergent or you have been diagnosed and you know that you are. um, So if you haven't received an official diagnosis, I would recommend, you know, taking advantage of your student health insurance. I'm someone who didn't have health insurance until I got to college, didn't go to doctors until I got to college. So I understand the experience of not having um, financial and educational and health um, re- health resources or um, what is it like? Um, yeah, healthcare resources. So if it's possible, if it's feasible, you're a student. You have student health insurance. Look into um, talking to a professional, uh, medical professional, and getting a diagnosis or getting some type of documentation. It may not necessarily have to be a diagnosis, uh, but having you know these things, whatever your symptoms are, whatever your characteristics are, having them documented or having a diagnosis that. Would have helped me because then I could have learned about the different supports that I'd have access to through the disability services office. I unfortunately struggled a lot with internalized ableism. I uh, would shame myself for being so anxious, for feeling like the world was too much, for getting overwhelmed easily, for struggling to socialize, for going on for Hours, days, sometimes weeks, masking, which is what masking is, you know, where you try to behave the way that others behave, but then it leaves you feeling depleted at the end of it. When you unmask and you're your authentic, true self, it can be really tiring to be masking all day um, or for days or for weeks on out. I mean, I know that to some extent I was able to socialize and, and have... um friends and all of that in college, but I I did struggle. And I did often break down at the end of each quarter. It was like a sigh of relief, like, oh, I survived another quarter. And that's when it all kind of came flooding. All the emotions came flooding. So again, learn, learn about seeking healthcare related support from some sort of medical professional, getting documentation and validating that your experience is is a thing and that you deserve support and that just because what you're experience doesn't look like other types of disabilities maybe because it's not a visible disability maybe it's because you're not needing to use a mobility aid you might feel bad you might feel you might even gaslight yourself like no I, I don't need help or I'm not struggling that much um or you know you know, maybe like I shouldn't make things easier for me. Like maybe it's a form of cheating the system. I don't want to cheat the system. But no, if you're struggling this much and if you have the confirmation of a medical professional, then yes, you are entitled to support. I want to say that again. Yes, you are entitled to support. You don't have to keep struggling or struggling to this extent forever, okay? All right, the next thing I want to say And this, again, I know it comes from a place of privilege, um, but if it's possible, if it's feasible, if it's within your ability, if you have access to it, work with a therapist to receive ongoing support. As a student, you might have access to a certain number of therapy sessions um, through uh, your counseling and psychological services center or office. And yeah, it might not be every week that you can see someone, maybe it's every other week, maybe it's every month. Um, but actually nowadays there, there are more options for online therapy support and for relatively more affordable options. I say relatively, cause even for some of us, like the only affordable option is free and that's just really hard to find. Um, but if it's if it's within your means, if you have access to it, take advantage and get that support. I can't tell you just how helpful it is to have someone else who can help you navigate difficult transitions, especially if you struggle with transitions and change. And a lot of us who are highly sensitive, we really, really struggle with change. I had a therapist who helped me navigate my transition with, quitting my higher ed job and moving abroad. I have a therapist now who's been helping me with, you know, navigating life as an immigrant in a new country and now deciding I want to move back to the U.S. And so my therapist is going to be helping me with navigating that other transition um, because I'm not moving back home home. So that's a change. um, But now I know that I can handle it, even though I'm highly sensitive. Why? Because I have Support and resources and tools. Um, I can't afford to see her often, but even if it's once a month, it still helps. Um, Okay. Next thing I want to say to all highly sensitive students out there is to find your safe and calm spaces. This is one thing I did do without even realizing it. Um, I was always on a mission to find spots on the UCLA campus that were quiet that were calm and that they were hidden um so I remember many many years ago finding it's probably not even a hidden gem anymore but I found this gem spot on the fourth or fifth floor of the arts library hardly anybody would be there and there were all these tables and outlets and there was some windows and a view and It was perfect. (laughs) And it got me through a lot of dissertating, a lot of writing of my dissertation. Um, But yeah, the safe and calm spaces include your home. Maybe you live with roommates. Ensuring that your roommates are people that help to make you feel safe and calm, that they're not having parties all the time, because that's probably not going to be great for your nervous system. Um, it may mean having conversations with roommates about expectations and needs. And in some cases, it might also mean moving out, finding new roommates or if it's within your means, living on your own. So safe and calm spaces are important. Cause again, we need more c- calm and more downtime, um, than a lot of other people. This I say to everybody. I this this next thing I'm going to say it applies to everyone, but it especially applies to you if you're highly sensitive and it's seeking out supportive mentors. Please try not to get discouraged if you run into unsupportive faculty, lackluster faculty, busy faculty, toxic faculty. It it's not always easy to find the supportive ones. And It takes a lot of effort for you to reach out and meet with them and all that. You know, the list goes on and on about like developing a relationship, but please, please, please don't give up. Find supportive mentors. You don't need to disclose anything to them if you're not comfortable, Um, but keep pushing yourself to the extent that is safe to you so that you can expand your support system to include professors and mentors who are not going to hurt your well-being. sometimes it's inevitable and you've got a f- faculty member or p- someone whose course you're taking or an advisor or some- someone who's just really difficult to work with. and if there's no way, shape or form for you to change that, then surround yourself with other people who can help you um, with navigating that or who can provide you with the support you're not receiving from that professor or from that advisor. So, definitely seek out supportive mentors because they will make a big difference in your experience the other thing i want to say that i wish i would have told myself i wish someone would have told me if i knew better um and that's to embrace embrace yourself embrace your talents embrace your skills embrace the things that make you you um Maybe you're really good at one-on-one encounters rather than group encounters. So then embrace that. Go to office hours and do your participating there. Talk to a professor or a TA one-on-one. If you prefer a smaller circle of friends, then don't force yourself to go to big parties. Maybe try planning smaller get-togethers. Maybe go to like events in more calmer or intimate environments. Maybe you're really creative, then find an outlet to express that creativity and it's okay to do that even if it's unrelated to what you're studying it'll actually help you (laughs) because it'll give you a reward and that can be your reward that can motivate you to get your other work done so so embrace embrace your talents along that line similarly do things that fill your cup this could be considered self-care to some but i mean In your case, if you're highly sensitive, do things that help to calm you down. This can mean meditation, journaling, yoga, taking a hot shower or bath, deep breathing exercises, stretches, alone time, spending time with an emotional support animal, walking outdoors, going out into nature, you name it. Figure out what are the things that fill your cup that help to calm you down and do more of those things and integrate them into your daily or weekly routine. The next thing is really important. Really, really, really important. That is to consider your speed. What I mean by that is that as someone who is highly sensitive, I know that I don't work at the same speed as others. I'm highly sensitive yeah. and, and I'm chronically ill. I definitely don't work at the same speed as others. Um, so you might not be able to go at the same pace as your peers, you might not be able to take as many courses, take on as many projects, or even finish your program in the same number of years as your peers. Maybe you might need to take a break. Maybe you might um, need to take an extra year. And so for that, I do think it's important to right now, if you're a student now, go and look up your university or department's leave policies. Find out about their extended time policies. Don't wait until you have an emergency to look into this and see if this is even feasible for you. Because what if having one more year could make all the difference between you struggling or making yourself sick or debating leaving your program to you finishing your program and finishing well or finishing with more clarity or more confidence. It's not the worst thing in the world if you take longer. It's not the worst thing in the world if you take a leave, especially if it allows you to do things in your own way on your own terms so consider your speed i know it's hard to not fall into that tendency of the comparison trap comparing yourself to your peers the folks on your cohort to see everybody graduating before you or making you know more progress than you but they are not you they don't have your timeline and um it doesn't make them any better or worse than you. We just all work differently. So the sooner you learn to embrace that, the sooner you'll be able to uh, more confidently advocate for yourself so that you can meet your own intrinsic goals and you can be successful according to, again, your own definition of success. Uh, So consider your speed. That's super duper important. The last thing I want to share... And I've said this, again, this applies to everyone, but it's especially important for neurodivergent and highly sensitive students. And that is to learn to set boundaries and to learn to advocate for yourself as soon as possible. I didn't learn how to say no. I didn't learn how to set boundaries. I had no boundaries in grad school. So I didn't learn all of this until after grad school, and. What can help you if you struggle with this too, like I did, um, is to start keeping track of moments that trigger your nervous system. Maybe you pull out your little notes app or you have a little notebook that you carry with you everywhere, or you just find a place where you can jot down your thoughts of moments that have triggered your nervous system to go on overdrive. So just start to track them. And then later, when you're not on overdrive, when you're not feeling that intensity, when you feel a little more calm, go back to those notes and think to yourself, well, is there something that I can do about it? Is there something that I could do differently next time? You know, maybe you struggle with receiving written feedback. Uh, Maybe next time you can ask your professor if they can provide verbal feedback. Maybe they record their feedback on zoom or using some sort of like audio recorder, or, um, maybe they give you f- verbal feedback with you in person when they meet with you. Um, or maybe you struggle with attending and presenting conferences. It's just really overwhelming. It's a lot of people and, um, Maybe you could see if they can move your panel time to an early morning time on the first day or a late afternoon or the last session on the last day. Um, I say this because they're usually the times that the least amount of people show up to panels. And I want to remind you that it's okay to have a small audience if you're presenting at a conference. If you can't do that, you could also always keep practicing with a trusted friend Or you could try to scope out the location beforehand so that you can familiarize yourself with it so that it feels less overwhelming and you can minimize your anxiety too. If you are um, being pressured to do something that you really don't want to do, it's okay to say no. Again, that's part of learning to advocate for yourself is learning when to say no and what saying no means to you. Uh, so, for you, saying no to this might mean that you're saying yes to yourself and to your own sense of peace and calm if you're saying no to something that you absolutely don't have to do. And if it is something you absolutely have to do and it is really, really hard on you, that's where the accommodations are helpful. So, um, if you struggle with saying no in general, I'm going to ask you to check out episode 174 of my podcast, because in that episode, I offer email scripts that you can use to say no in different situations. I mean, if if someone's asking you something right there in person, and you struggle to say no, just tell them, like, can you give me some time to think about it? Or can you email me about it uh, so that I can, you know, review it and think about it? Giving yourself time will give you the time and space to come up with a way that feels safe to you to say no, okay? Uh, So learning to set boundaries and advocating for yourself, very, very important for everyone, but again, especially highly sensitive students and neurodivergent students. Hopefully you enjoyed today's session. Um, I will probably do a couple more this year on (laughs) neurodivergence. And I'm hoping I can find some speakers who can who can speak to their experiences and their knowledge on different topics. Um, hopefully, I can bring someone who can talk about ADHD because I have you know clients who who have or are ADHD, and that's one thing that they're trying to learn how to navigate a little bit better. And um, and and other types of neurodivergence and also disabilities too. So be on the lookout. Um, something that I'm going to you know, try to bring up as a topic a little bit more, even if you are not neurodivergent, I think this is important to learn about because there is someone out there that you've encountered that is part of your life who is. So the more we learn to support each other, the better off we are. And actually when I talk about um, uh, accessibility and accommodations, and accessibility tools with other people, you might be surprised to find out that a lot of these tools are not just great for disabled and neurodivergent folks, but they're also great for you too. So the more you learn about support others, who knows, you might find ways to support yourself too. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you all next time. You probably thought this episode was over, but I actually have a quick postscript because I was re-listening to the episode, getting ready to put it out there. And I thought, I really, really need to clarify these two things for my audience before I can move forward with publishing this. So the first one is I want to clarify the use of the terms neurodiversity and neurodivergence or neurodivergent. Those terms actually were coined by different people. Neurodiversity was coined by a sociologist, Judy Singer, in 1997, and neurodivergent Neurodivergence was coined by autistic activist Cassian Asasumasu in year 2000. I'm not 100% set on the year 2000 because I couldn't find um, the exact source, but I believe it's close to around that year when it was coined. Why do I say this? Because these terms are relatively new terms. They came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. And the other thing I want to say is that they are not clinical terms. So you can self-identify. They are self-identifying terms. And because of that, there's a lot of debates right now in the neurodivergent community about what does and doesn't count within the umbrella of neurodivergence. Some folks uh, include mental illness. Some folks don't. Some folks include... Uh, trauma and things like post-traumatic stress disorder. Other people don't. So again, it's up to you to do a little bit more research, learn a little bit more about this topic. And if you feel that you can relate, if you feel seen, heard, felt, uh, validated by this community, then of course you get to self-identify as neurodivergent too that's it for today's episode no more postgres after this i hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week thanks so much for joining me in the grad school femtoring podcast if you liked what you heard here are three ways you can support the show the first is to make sure you're subscribed and leave a review of the podcast If you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, you become eligible for a free half hour coaching session with me. Yes, that's right. One free session. Once you leave a review, you can email me a screenshot and I'll send you a link to sign up. The second way to show your love is to get yourself a copy of my free 15 page grad school femtoring kit, which includes resources on research, organization, grad school, and career prep. Go to gradschoolfemtouring.com slash kit to get it today. The third and last way to support my show is to follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok with the handle at gradschoolfemtouring. Thanks again and until next time.